A passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 18. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in the letter on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, the Word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. And thank you all for being here this morning. It's so great to have you with us at River Oaks. Really appreciate your coming. We have celebrated uh, several baptisms today with a few in our earlier service, and I'd like to take just a moment to say a word about why I think it's very important for every Christian, every follower of Jesus, to be baptized at some point in your life. First, Jesus himself was baptized. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. John the Baptist was taken aback and said, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What did he mean? Jesus had no sin. His sins did not need to be washed away. But he was setting us an example in this new covenant kingdom that he came to bring. And thereafter, he commanded his disciples to go into all the world to bring the gospel to all people and baptize them and teach them everything that he taught them. So as we follow in the New Testament the ministry of the early disciples in the book of Acts, we see that they did just that. We see Peter standing up and preaching, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see people being baptized, and, and further we see that baptism becomes the sign of the new covenant, the sign of the washing away of our sins, of our burial with Christ, and resurrection to newness of life in Him. Now, if you've ever been baptized before and you're new to our church, you don't need to be rebaptized here just because you're part of our church or even have rededicated your life to the Lord, but I do think it's critically important not for our salvation, only our faith in Jesus saves us, but for obedience to him, that every person, every person who's embraced the gospel, be baptized in order to honor him. 
If you have questions about that or want to know more, just write on your ham here card, you know, talk to somebody about baptism. Now, the final thing I'll say is this. It is far easier to be baptized here than it is in some other places in the world. And to give you an example of that, if you look at the screens just for a moment. Now, as a final plug for baptism, I just want to say that water in here is, it's actually heated. It's actually warm before the service. Boy, if I was in that, if I was in Russia like that, I would sure want to be sure about who is holding my hand when they dip me down in that water. Well, this month we've been studying what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ. What it means that we're called as witnesses. And we've used a definition for witnesses that you'll see on the screen. Witnesses, we've said, are empowered followers of Jesus who are sent, sent to show and to share the gospel. The standard verse for uh, what it means to be a witness really comes from the lips of Jesus recorded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when he said to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's not a theological degree that makes a person a witness. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not even the extent of our biblical knowledge as important as it is to know the Bible. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who makes us a witness. Furthermore, we've seen that every follower of Jesus is sent by him into this world. When Jesus was praying, and his prayers record in John chapter 17, for his disciples, he prayed not only for his first followers, but for all those who would believe in him through their teaching to their message. That extends even to us today. And he prayed, Father, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Apostle Paul would later say that's the only way the gospel goes out. How can they proclaim it unless they are sent? What are we sent to do? We're sent to both show the gospel and share the gospel. We show the gospel by the way we live. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. And we're sent to verbally share the gospel, as we talked about last week. We've prepared a little booklet to go along with this series of messages, and it's available at our resource center. It'll go into a little more detail about how we can actually verbally share the message of the gospel with our friends, with our family, and you're welcome to pick one up. They're free if interested in that. But I'd like to talk this morning specifically about what it means to be sent with the power of the Holy Spirit, to bring this message of the gospel to the world around us with the power that God gives to his people, his followers, by the Holy Spirit. We'll look at a chapter, uh, most of which Abby read for us just a moment ago. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll see that the ministry of showing and sharing the gospel is referred to here as the ministry of the Spirit. I'm going to read the first few verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as background. We read these words from the Apostle Paul. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, 
delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What does this mean? What does he mean when he starts off talking about letters of recommendation? The Apostle Paul often had to deal with people who came into the churches after he left to teach them and to establish them, people who came in to discredit his ministry, to accuse him of certain things. And so he's, he's saying, do we, do we need letters of recommendation to show the genuineness of our ministry? You yourselves, the people of Corinth to whom I've preached, he says, you are our living letters. Not letters written with ink, but letters written by the Spirit of God on human hearts. And then he makes an interesting statement here in verse 6 when he says, God's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, what, is, what does this mean? He's going to carry this theme further into this chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's a critically important one to understand as we're seeking to understand the gospel and what it means to go into the world with the message of Jesus. The letter refers to the letter of the law, the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai for the people of Israel. Now, why does Paul say the letter kills? Is he saying the letter's bad? No, the letter of the law is good and it's holy. He says it kills because the law exposes our law breaking. The law exposes our sin. As the Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. The law exposes our law breaking before our holy God and therefore prepares us for the message of the grace of God that's in the gospel. So in this chapter, he's going to contrast the letter with the spirit. The letter of the law with the work of the spirit in the gospel. The gospel of grace through Jesus is all about the work of the spirit writing that message of grace on the human hearts. He further begins to teach that the ministry of the spirit causes the gospel to be seen in its glory. And we get here to some verses that may, may be a little challenging to understand if, if we don't have a little bit of Old Testament background. Remember now, the people to whom the Apostle Paul was preaching, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. As he began explaining further, teaching from the Old Testament about the new covenant, what we call the gospel. And he writes... Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with glory, such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. Now, let me pause here for a minute. Look at what he's saying. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone coming with glory. What is he talking about? I'm going to read just a couple of verses from the Old Testament book of Exodus. The first is from Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18. It comes at the end of about 11 chapters of God giving laws to Moses up on Mount Sinai. And at the end of that long passage, we read this. And he, that is God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, 
tablets of stone written with the finger of God. A couple chapters later, Exodus chapter 34, the Bible says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So that gives us background to these verses we now see on the screen. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The ministry of the Spirit is a reference to the gospel of Jesus that the Holy Spirit makes real to people through us. He goes on to write, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and again, he's calling the law the ministry of condemnation only because the law exposes our inability to be perfectly sinless before God. It results in our condemnation. But God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world through Him might be saved. The law is a spotlight showing our need. The gospel shows us the grace of God. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is, if Moses' face was glowing, getting those Old Testament laws, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The ministry of righteousness refers to what Jesus accomplished in His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. Because on the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, who was sinless, the Son of God, God the Son Himself, bore the full penalty for our law-breaking and our lawlessness, our coveting, our breaking of the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Jesus bore the penalty. Through our faith in Him, the Bible says we are credited with the very righteousness of Christ. So that through our faith in Jesus, God says your penalty is paid. You're righteous. You're just. And so the gospel is called the ministry of righteousness. And Paul says, if Moses' face glowed with that Old Testament ministry of condemnation, the law well, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, the Old Testament law, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent, the gospel of Jesus, have glory? Now, one thing to note here is that the gospel, that which is permanent, that which comes with glory, is also referred to in this passage as the ministry of the Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is always at work to make the gospel known. That's why when Jesus began his public ministry, there was immediate demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, far surpassing any of the Old Testament prophets who did from time to time miracles. Jesus, the Bible says, went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went around casting out demons. And when he was accused by the religious leaders of doing this by some evil power, he said, no, it's the power of the Spirit of God. 
And if it's by the Spirit of God that I'm casting out demons, the kingdom of God has come to you. The Holy Spirit brings the kingdom of God through the good news message of the gospel. And he is still doing that today. I want to pause here and share something with you. It is so significant. Uh, I just want you to be able to see this and celebrate this because it is indeed an example of the power of God dramatically at work today in a part of the world where the gospel was previously, as far as we know, not available. Eight or nine years ago, our church decided to adopt an unreached people group. That's a people group, a language group somewhere in the world with, as far as we know, no access to the gospel, no scripture in their language, no missionary, no church. I'm not going to name it because I'm going to talk about the pastor who's there now and our messages, of course, go online and so forth. But um, we begin praying. A group of you, I see one or two of you here, I think you went on that first trip to walk around that country praying, some connections, relationships were made that day that have resulted in ongoing fruit. Later, young family in our church actually moved there and helped staff a medical clinic. But now, after prayer, after trips, there is a church being established, and I want to share just a, a bit of the story of the pastor. He writes his testimony, he says, my name is Tech, his first name, and I come from a village in this country. He says, I grew up in a, a certain religion, uh, worshiping certain deities, but in my early life, I uh, fell in with bad company, he says, and many bad habits. Later, he met his wife and married her, but two months into their marriage, she, she seemed to be overcome by some evil power. They went to doctors, they went to the various deities of their religion, they even went to witch doctors and tried all they could. She could not be freed from what it was that seemed to oppress her life. He met a Christian who took him to a group where Christians were meeting and they prayed for his wife. He says, God answered the believer's collective prayers and delivered my wife from the clutches of this evil spirit. After this amazing deliverance, we profess Christ as the Lord of our lives. Feeling a call to mission work, we pursued a Bible program, and after finishing our training, we started mission work. Fast forward ahead to what he says now. He's moved to a village on the, 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 near the border of this country, begun a church there, and has seen, as he writes, over time, 300 people accept Christ as their personal Savior. You'll see now a picture of these worshipers in this country. And then finally, the beginnings of what, as far as we know, is the first physical church building being constructed um, among this previously unreached group of people. And I think we should take a moment just to give glory to God and to thank Him and praise Him and pray for what he's doing there. Would you join me now? Yes, thank him and praise him. That's... <laughs> Father, we give you all praise for this is something no human can do.
but you have shown your power, and you've done a great thing. And we pray this would be a small spark that would spread into a mighty blaze, and we pray for the gospel to prevail in this country, for incredible fruit for your glory to be born, so that people be sent out from this place as ambassadors, missionaries, and messengers to other places, to take the knowledge of the true and living God, the way and the truth and the life, Jesus our Lord. And Father, thank you. Thank you for letting us have just a tiny little role in the great work that you're doing. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. It is the Spirit of God who makes the gospel known. Finally, we see this in this passage. In our ministry of showing and sharing the gospel, the Apostle Paul writes, our sufficiency is of God. And we read these words, such is a confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You may think you could never be one of those that God uses to share the message of the gospel with somebody else. You may think, I could never be used to bring another person to salvation. I'm so weak. I'm not gifted. I don't know enough. I couldn't answer anybody's questions. You may have those kinds of excuses, and most of us have. But if you have those concerns, I would just say you're in very good company. Because the Bible shows us that God delights in using really weak people. Weak in and of themselves, that is. In order to magnify His power through them. For example, Moses. One of the greatest spokespeople of God. The one through whom God brought the law. When God called Moses, here's what Moses said. I am slow of speech and tongue. Please. Send someone else. Moses said, I'm just not qualified for this. God called the prophet Jeremiah. Great prophet. What did Jeremiah say? I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Now the apostle Paul couldn't say he didn't know how to speak. He was well trained. Highly trained. But I think Paul's struggle, if he had one that he went into detail about, I think it would have more to do with his worthiness because he would elsewhere write in the New Testament, I'm the foremost of sinners because I persecuted the church of God. I'm sure he remembered standing there when the blood of Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the book of Acts, was being shed and giving approval to it. Maybe you have struggles with your own worthiness and think God could never use me because I did this. God could never use me because I've been through this. God delights to use people who recognize that their reliance must be on Him. God gives His power to the humble, not to the proud. God gives His power to those who recognize they have no sufficiency, no competence, no adequacy to do the work of the kingdom in and of themselves, but God does. God gives His grace to the humble. As Jesus said, 
you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. God magnifies his power in human weakness. In showing and sharing the gospel, our sufficiency is from God. God delights in using the weak. Several years ago, I was listening to a message by a man named Leighton Ford, and he was speaking at a YMCA prayer breakfast in Charlotte. And he told the story about this man referred to as Mr. Eternity in Sydney, Australia, and how, through this man's ministry, people around the world had been touched, not, not just in Sydney, Australia, and beyond. People had been affected, people come to faith. <coughs> Excuse me. Later, <clears throat> I heard Josh McDowell, rather I read, <coughs> excuse me, one of his newsletters, and he was sharing the same stories. All these people affected by this man who was simply referred to by some as Mr. Eternity. So back in August, I was thinking about this series, actually was preparing this little, little booklet we have. I was thinking about him, and I started to research uh, online who this man was and found there was quite a bit about it. He was a man named Arthur Stace. And he was born in 1885, you'll see his picture on the screen, um, to parents who were both alcoholics. And he grew up uh, in a terrible situation. At the age of 12, he became a ward of the state, uh, had little or no education, working in coal mines by the age 14. Drunkenness, crime, jail, marked his life well into adulthood. The age of 47, he ended up at a church where he heard an evangelist named J.G. J. G. Ridley preaching. And this evangelist was talking about eternity. And in, in his message, he said, I wish I could shout eternity throughout the streets of Sydney. As he heard the word eternity, he was overcome by the Spirit of God. He began crying. He began weeping. And he felt like God was giving him a call to go and write the word eternity all over the streets of Sydney, Australia. Now, some articles say he, he could barely even read or write, but he had this beautiful script when he wrote the word eternity. So for years, 34 years, this man, who was only five foot three, very frail and very thin, wore a a felt hat and a double-breasted suit, and he walked the streets of Sydney, Australia with a piece of chalk and a crayon, writing the word eternity on sidewalks and public places. It's estimated that he wrote it well over half a million times. And yet, he could not have known. Now that he's died, there is a plaque that kind of remembers him there uh, in Sydney, Australia, but he could not have known what it meant when people were confronted with just the word eternity and thought, started to think about their own eternal destiny, what would happen to them when they die. Others, people like Leighton Ford and Josh McDowell, others over time have shared stories that have come many decades later about what he did. His ministry, it was like a... A, a, a rock thrown into a great big pond with ripple effects just going on and on and on and on and on. A man we would consider just completely 
unqualified to do anything significant for the kingdom. Why? Because God magnifies his power through our human weakness. And even the Apostle Paul, brilliant though he was, trained well though he was, said not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. Our sufficiencies of God, he's the one who made us competent, sufficient, is ministers of a new covenant. How dare we say, if we know Jesus and embrace the gospel, how dare we say, God could never use me. If you have the Holy Spirit within, His powers that work through you, only God knows the extent of the fruit that could be born through you. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You abide in me and my words abide in you. This is to my Father's glory. This is God's will that you bear much fruit. Recently, the elders um, on our church session have been praying and seeking God about how our church as a whole can bear the most fruit we can possibly bear in the coming years. How we can focus on that. We know we're called to fulfill the Great Commission. All churches are. But we've been asking God, are there specific ways we can focus our efforts to bear the most fruit we can bear? And we've been asking the question, how can we best glorify God and make disciples? How can we here at River Oaks best glorify God and make disciples in the coming years? And we think it's by building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. What we mean by that is that we would so help to spiritually form people in our church that every one of us who knows Jesus would embrace our identity as sent people. Recognizing we don't just come to church in small groups and uh, ministry teams to, to learn and gain knowledge, but we're sent out into this world to show the gospel, to share the gospel, to bring the love of Jesus, to bring the truth of Jesus. We're the instruments God's chosen to use in the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the way we'll grow most spiritually too. Because Jesus' way of making disciples was to call people to himself, to teach them, train them by word and example, to observe him in ministry and then send them out two by two to go out into the world and do the very same things he was doing. That's the will of God for you and me. In your schools, in our neighborhoods, where we work. You may be relatively new to our church. You may be thinking, well, how's that going to happen for me? I mean, I don't really know the Bible. I don't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. How's that going to happen for me? We've realized as we've been praying and seeking God, we need a, a clearer path for folks in their spiritual growth so they don't just come into the church and see a menu of 20 different things to be involved in. What we've needed is not a menu so much as a, as a map a clear map for how to pursue spiritual growth. We refer to that as our discipleship pathway. And we think there are really four parts to it. The first is doing what we're doing today, worshiping together. God calls his people to gather to worship him and to hear his word. I believe there's a unique way the spirit of God works when God's people are gathered together that it cannot be duplicated by me sitting at home by, by myself watching a message on the screen. 
It's more than gaining knowledge. It's experiencing the way God works when we gather to worship Him together and hear His Word. Secondly, by growing in a group. Many have discovered that the best way to continue to progress in spiritual growth is studying Bible as part of a, the Bible as part of a smaller group. This, by the way, I think is the best way to learn to pray. When you're around a few other people in a smaller group setting who are comfortable praying and you hear them pray and you learn to pray yourself. Furthermore, by serving on a team. We recognize in our spiritual growth, God has given each of us unique gifts. Those gifts should be used for the blessing, for the edification, the upbuilding of other people. Whether it's ministering to children or serving administratively or helping in a parking lot. We grow when we serve. But it also includes going on a mission. Every believer is called to grow to the point at which we recognize our identity as sent people. And we go into the community and we serve other people. In our local ministries, maybe like some of the folks this morning, all the way to Kenya. So as we draw to a close, I want to raise just one question for us to ask ourselves. How can I show and share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit? The first is to be sure you've received the gospel. You can't share what you haven't received. To know that you've placed your faith in what Jesus did on the cross for you. Secondly, to acknowledge your insufficiency and trust in God's sufficiency. God gives His grace and power to the humble. It's those who know how to humble themselves before God and rely on His power that will experience the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and through them. Yield control of your life to the Holy Spirit. He dwells within everyone who's truly a believer. But the Bible calls us to be filled with the Spirit. I take that to mean we're to be completely yielded to Him, to His control, to His enabling power. And then to take the steps of faith God calls you to take. For Arthur Stace, it was taking a piece of chalk and writing the word eternity. For you, it might be prayer walking in your neighborhood and beginning to pray about the needs of your neighbors. It might be hospitality, which I think to be one of the most underrated tools for outreach and showing the love of God to others, inviting some neighbors or or friends or maybe folks who've moved here from another country to your home for a meal. Maybe it's going through the training this afternoon in your, in your bulletin for, for the jail ministry and beginning to go down and mentor inmates in prison. Ask God to show you what steps of faith He wants you to take. And when you take those steps, I believe you will see the power of God at work in and through your life in a greater way. Would you join me as we pray about that this morning? Father, we thank You that you not only have brought us into an eternal relationship with yourself through the shedding of the blood of your own Son, we thank you that you have redeemed us, adopted us into your family, even called us righteous because of our Lord Jesus. But not only that, you've given us a place of service in your kingdom. You've given us the privilege of being your instruments to take the same message of your grace to other people. What an honor you've bestowed on us, Father, and we thank you for that. 
Help us to learn how to rely on You and take the steps of faith You call us to take. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.